With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Coming up on this week's show, the Atari 400 mini games list is revealed. Modders fix a Nintendo design flaw. And we get the story of Domark and Idos with co-founder Dominic Wheatley. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books. Now, have you seen from Ants to Zombies, six decades of video game horror? Now, this covers all the genres from rail shooters to open world RPGs, from haunted mansions to infested space stations. If you love horror video games, this is a must read. You can check this out and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 416, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast, a show that each and every Friday celebrates the world of classic video games. Now, today it's been all over my social media timeline. I shared this with you guys a bit earlier on, but uh, Sony, I think, have announced that the, the PlayStation 5 is kind of coming towards the end of its life. Which... Does that mean it's retro? Yeah, well, that sounds ridiculous to me. I, I was looking at that thinking, I haven't finished playing with the PlayStation 1 yet. They haven't even released GTA yet, you know. <laughs> we don't care about all that stuff, though. This is why, you know, every week on the podcast, we celebrate the classic days of gaming, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, sometimes a bit earlier as well. Cover all kinds of stuff on the podcast. And of course, um, it's been an amazing week for us because we've had so many people tagging us in social media posts. Proudly wearing their Retro Hour t-shirts and showing off their audio cassette tapes and holding up their books, which have been arriving all around the world over the last couple of days. It takes a while for those shipments to get across, doesn't it? Um, I think we were waiting for it to hit America and then we saw it hit New York first and started going around. Amiga Bill had one, but also... Um, you know, Australia. So yes. it's it's literally on the opposite side of the world now, which is amazing to see. Yeah, I think one landed in Canada this morning. We got tagged in a picture. So, um, yeah, I mean, for anyone that backed our Kickstarter that ran about a year ago, we did send all the UK and Ireland books out. Um, Joe was busy packing those all over Christmas, weren't you, pretty much every night. Um, we took carloads of them to the post. I do mean it was about, what, five car journeys? Yeah, between me did. and you, Dan, and yeah. Dan's wife and my wife driving yeah. to the post office. Because the it postman out- was going, not these guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It turned out Royal Mail for the UK was the uh, the best option for us, interestingly, which you know yeah. worked out quite well. And then um, our German printers actually distributed it for the rest of the world. Yeah, um, which is they got sent out a few weeks later, didn't they? And uh, yeah, I think they were twenty fourth of January. I think they yeah. sent those out on. So. Um, they have been arriving now, though, but yeah, they did say it could be like six to eight weeks. But um, I know there are some, some people, I'm getting messages every day, people going, where's my book? Where's my book? They are out there. We've sent every copy out now. Apart from there is 18 books still outstanding from uh, people who haven't filled in their Kickstarter survey. So, so I've so, tried to reach out to them. Yeah, if, if we're going into your junk mail, then yeah. uh, hopefully we'll catch you on the podcast. And, yeah, please do uh, check Yeah, we, uh, we can't deliver it without an address. <laughs> 
That is it. So if, you, if you're listening and you backed our Kickstarter for the book and you're thinking, mine hasn't turned up yet, please log into your Kickstarter and just double check you filled that survey in because without your address, as Ravi said, you know, it's a bit hard to post it. So, uh, and thank you so much for all the love as well. I mean, uh, I, I kind of feel like I, I don't know jinx things, but I've not seen a single bad comment about the book. You've jinxed it. Yeah, going to get a load of tweets now. It's crap. Um, yeah, I mean, the love has been overwhelming. So thank you so much to everyone who's uh, supported it, has, uh, you know, read it and uh, has, has shared the love on the socials as well. So it's been uh, an incredible year getting that book out there. I'm very, very proud of it. So uh, I hope you enjoy it as well. Now, on the podcast this week, we have got an amazing guest. And uh, I said to Ravi after we did this interview, because um, I always love it when we get the the proper OG guys on the oh, podcast. Oh, yeah. 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 And of, of absolutely huge companies as well. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking British gaming companies, uh, Domark, I mean, they were huge back in the 80s. You know, originally on the the 8-bit platforms, you know, they started with their first game, Eureka, um, that Ian Livingston actually wrote. Um, he was an early investor in the company as well, of course, went on to uh, be the founder of Games Workshop. And then very early on, I mean, they had this interesting initiative on that game. And bearing in mind, I think this was about 1984, 85, that game came out. And they offered players a chance to win £25,000 if you finished the game, which, you know, you think for the time, that was incredible. Because, I mean, Dominic, who we're talking to this week, and his partner, Mark, I mean, that's what Domark stands for. It's basically an amalgamation of Dominic and Mark. They both had a marketing background. So I think, you know, compared to many other company heads that we've had on this podcast, a lot of which have like, you know, backgrounds in programming, for example. I think their experience in marketing, which is where they came from, really had a different perspective, didn't it? And meant, meant that they viewed the industry through, through a different lens back Yeah, then. When, when you're in video game publishing, it's all about getting those licenses yeah. and kind of getting those rights, packaging stuff correctly and, uh, you know, getting it in the, in the right people's eyes. And this was a time before... Um, you know, they were in the retail stores en masse yeah. in the UK. Uh, so, you know, you're kind of taking a bit of a risk there as well. And, you know, Ocean were another another huge company that um, had a lot of licenses as well. And we, we covered some great licenses in this. Uh, Championship Manager, which is oh, one that people are still absolutely obsessed with. Um, yeah, there was some uh, Star Wars licensing as well. You know, Domar were an absolutely huge company. And then they kind of turned into this this beast with so many companies getting involved. And uh, when they went public, they also uh, did Tomb Raider. You know, that's uh, <laughs> a pretty big game there. And uh, uh, we talk about the early days of Domark, how it started, you know, getting some of the great licenses, the establishment of it, and then hitting Tomb Raider. Yeah, I mean, how that company just absolutely spiralled. I mean, it blew up, didn't that? I mean, you know, pretty much from the coming out of the gate, you know, they were there with that first game, Eureka, that just got so much press coverage. And then there's huge licenses, converting all the Atari coin-ups as well. Like you said, Championship Manager. And then, you know, Tomb Raider, when that came along in the 90s, when they merged with IDOS, that reverse takeover. Fascinating story and uh, just incredible to get it from one of the founders of the company. So our special guest proper industry legend, Dominic Wheatley. He's going to be coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, you know the way the podcast works. If you're a regular listener, the first half of the show is when we like to do a little roundtable chat and bring you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last seven days. And this story just keeps on giving us more details. I mean, we've all been kind of hyped for the Atari 400 Mini, which is the next, I'll call it a mini console. It's really a mini computer though, isn't it? From uh, Retro Games Limited and uh, Atari in the US, I think, uh, are releasing it over there. Um, this is a system that's basically a modern mini 
recreation of the legendary Atari 400 computer. And I've said on the podcast, I'm very excited to get my hands on this. Obviously, you guys have uh, heard a bit more about it since we started talking about it. You guys tempted by this system at all? Yeah, if 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 I kind of had the space in my house, it's only a mini system, though, Ravi. It's in that the size of your phone. Yeah, yeah, but still, you know, it's plug sockets, it's all that kind of stuff. Doesn't have to be set up constantly. I was going to say it's the weirdest excuse for not getting a system I think I've ever heard. <laughs> Ravi sounding like an old man these days, but I know I see what you're saying. If if you're not going to play it and it's yeah. just going to sit there in the box and take up room, etc. I understand, and I and and I'm probably in the same uh, boat as Ravi. I'm probably not going to grab it, but I think that's just because of I haven't got any nostalgia for it. Which well, neither have I. But to me, it's something that because it's something I've never used before and mm. I've heard about. That's what intrigues me. I think it's a platform yeah. I've never explored before. Yeah, I understand that, and quite a few people on the hangout, uh, you know, our monthly hangout that we do. With patrons, quite a few people were talking on there saying, you know, they haven't played it and stuff because obviously it was a lot bigger in America than it was yeah. in Europe. And, uh, you know, I, I few of our listeners were saying on there, yeah, you know, they, they want to play it because of because they never have played it. They've never, you know, seen one or, you know, they've only seen them at conventions and stuff. I know this isn't, a, a, you know, it's a recreation of one, etc. So I get that element of it as well. But it just, I don't know, it just... It looks cool. I like the look of it and everything. Like, obviously, it's super retro. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, is it a bit too old school for you, maybe? Maybe. <laughs> Late um, 70s. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But, yeah, I mean, they've just... Uh, the reason we talked about it is announced the full lineup for the uh, built-in games, and there's 25 of them, which is nice to see. Yeah. I mean, we won't go through them all because, like you said, there is a, yeah, a hell of 25. a lot of them on here. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, there is um, a few that kind of leap out to me. Um, Battlezone which, of course, a uh, legendary game. Um, you've got Boulder Dash on there as well, which, you know, if I think of, like, those kind of classic Atari titles, that's one that stands out. We had Peter Leeper on the podcast, didn't we, Ravi? Like, yeah, yeah. Years ago. <laughs> Centipede's on there, which, you know, Centipede appears to be on, like, you know, every single Atari <laughs> collection. And same with Millipede, that's on there as well. Um, you've got Miner 2049ers on there too. Uh, Hover Bover, um, which is a very quirky maze game. Um, Hover Bother, I've got a feeling that could be the Jeff Minter game I'm thinking of. Yeah, that the, came out. The, the things that stand out to me on it is Star Raiders 2. Yep, Star Raiders uh, 2 is on there. Uh, I, I'd love to play that and, you know, experience that in a 720p, but also Mule as well, because I know it's got the um, four-player input as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, having a multiplayer title on there is pretty cool. Yeah, so I think, you know, the thing is with these systems, it's I find it quite hard to get excited about the the built-in games list. Mm. I mean, it was the same with the A500 Mini. I mean, yeah, there was like, you know, fewer right Amiga games on there, but the main appeal to this is, you know, you can literally just download all the ROMs from the internet and whack it on a USB stick. So really the built-in games are kind of, you know, irrelevant really. That's the they? thing. Like, I'm not massively excited because I've seen the games before everywhere right. else and they've yeah. been put on quite a few times onto quite a few systems. Um you know, and we've had the Atari 50th collection that's had a yeah. a lot of a lot of the same software with it. But yeah, I get it. You know, and people obviously they're going to hack it. They're going to put all sorts in there, and uh, it, it does look quite nice if if you're into that. Yeah, I mean that's the thing for me. I mean, you know, I mentioned on the podcast last week that when I got my A500 Mini, first thing I did was try to get you know the Amiga Workbench running on there. I, I, I can play all the games anyway, but I thought, oh, can I get the operating system running on it? And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, to me. I kind of want to drop into like, you know, can I get basic running on it and do some programming, that kind of thing. So um, I'd be interested to play around with it and kind of see 
if that is possible. I do, mean, do you think there's any like obvious missing ones there that 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 would be you know the big titles that would uh, bring people in? I think they've got they've got the lot there, really, haven't they? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I'm not all that familiar with the Atari 400 library, which to me is it's kind of a plus because sometimes you go into a system and if you are a bit too aware of it, you kind of just gravitate to yeah, a few it's, games. It's, and you it's might like the MSX with me. I, yeah. I wouldn't know what I was doing there at all, but uh, I'd enjoy it. You know. And sometimes you might find that you really like like a game and then you, know, you go into a website and suddenly you find out that actually the rest of the community thinks that the game is dreadful. But you yeah. think, oh, actually, I thought that was all right. I'll, I'll keep quiet about that. But there's Which a few that I've, often. you know, heard people talking about and yeah. playing, of course. You know, I've played stuff like Millipede and, uh, you know, Minor 2049. I was uh, meant to be kind of like a, a precursor to Manic Miner. I think it took a lot of influence from there. Right. Uh, Lee as well. Is meant to be really good, the uh, martial arts one. I think it is a nice little selection. Like I said, you know, I'm not really knowledgeable about a lot of those games on there, apart from like you know the, the ports of the Atari uh, arcade titles. But I'm looking forward to kind of just exploring a system that I'm unfamiliar with, especially with that, you know, because I love the Amiga, obviously, having that J minor heritage as well. Um, and obviously I could emulate these, but I think having it on a, a mini system that's kind of has been tested, you know, it's going to run them well. And also having that, uh, that rewind and save state function yeah. We talked about a couple of weeks ago when we first had this announcement. I think for someone who's uh, pretty crap at games like me, that'll be a welcome addition. So not long to wait. It is coming out next month, uh, 28th of March, uh, for £99.99 UK pounds. And uh, pre-orders are available on Retro Games Limited's website. I'll link that up in the show notes. Now, uh, Joe's always got his eye peeled for new Mega Drive games. And I've got to say, um, this one, which is uh, launching on Kickstarter, uh, well, yesterday at the time when this podcast comes out, but at the moment it's uh, just in pre-order as we record this on Valentine's Day. This yeah. looks... Feeling loved up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> loved, up loved up for Rocket Panda. Yeah, I was going to um, say. Yeah, this is Rocket Panda coming to the Sega Mega Drive and Sega Genesis on physical, physical cart, like say, launching later this week, but at the point of uh, this show coming out, would have launched yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, got my eye on this one. I really, really, really like the look of this. It looks beautiful. It does look beautiful. And um, it's coming to us, so it's being published and released by Mega Cat Studios, um, who have done quite a few of these now, who are wicked. And it's being uh, developed by Space Pants Games, uh, who are two guys, Julian Scott and Ben Everett, who are behind that, who uh, have been in the industry for quite a while, from what I understand. And yeah, Rocket Panda, it's a it's a classic 2D platformer, but you are flying around, essentially, as a panda with a jetpack. And graphically, it really does remind me. So I've checked it out, and you know they are British, the guys who are making this. Yeah. The graphic style of it really reminds me of those kind of old-school Codemaster... You know, like, you know, Dizzy and... You know, it reminds um, me of a bit bit Robocod. I was was saying it. I was like, (laughs) James. And then you said it. Yeah, Robocod. It reminds me of James Pond too. Robocod. And even the music reminds me of that. And like, that's real nostalgia for me, that is. Mm. Um, So in terms of the gameplay, it's hard to describe. So you're kind of floating around. Can levels. I tell you the story of the game? Apparently you uh, you enter the thrilling world of Biscuitland and yep. you have to save it from the clutches of the wicked Biscuit Head. Nice. Nice. So, yeah. Sounds like my See wife, Biscuit Head. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait for Joe to get a, a smack around the back of the head in a moment. <laughs> so, yeah, gameplay-wise, you are traversing the levels, kind of like dodging the obstacles, dodging the enemies and stuff, but then you have to rescue these little baby pandas 
mm. from Cages. So it kind of reminds me of kind of like James Pond meets Sonic 3D, you know, the Flickr one where you've got to save the Flickers and drop them off. That's what it reminds me of, but obviously with the 2D graphics, I really, really like the look of this and I think I'm going to go ahead and back this because I'd love to have this in the collection and, you know, on physical cartridge on the Mega Drive as well, be wicked and British developed and stuff. And it's the musically, uh, watching the trailer to it, it's got that classic, the biscuit land makes sense. And it reminds me of James Pond too, you know, with the uh, what's the, the levels which were based around the suites and stuff, just the music in there and that classic M- Mega Drive like twang. I don't yeah. know, it looks it. a bit snazzy to me. Do you as think? Well. Yeah, yeah, just like the, the colours in there, but um, yeah. It is colourful, but it, yeah. I don't know. I just, I can't get my head away, away from James Pond. Yeah, that, that was the first thing I thought of as well, especially because I mean, it, well, even like dog. I even you know that Wonder biscuit dog. connection. Because I mean, you know, it was uh, James Pond was sponsored by it was McVitie's Penguins, I think, wasn't mm. it? Sponsored that game, so like maybe like Jammy Dodgers or something should should sponsor this. <laughs> like, get that tie in in there. <laughs> That's a good idea. Actually, yeah. I like that. It looks very nostalgic, though. I mean, th- this looks like a game that if you'd have told me this came out in like ninety two, ninety three, it looks yeah. like perfectly of that era, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. That pure it's not like oh it's you know one of these late release mega drive games by like treasure i mean there is some of the uh you know scrolling backgrounds and you know parallax scrolling and stuff like that and some of the enemies have got that kind of pseudo mode 7 look to them which i guess yeah. is where ravi says it looks a little bit super nintendo mm. but it 100 percent has that kind of like mid mega drive look to it like 92 93 look to it i would say yeah, so uh, that is um, should be launched on Kickstarter by the time this podcast comes out on Friday. So if you want to back that and get a, a proper old-school-looking new game for your Mega Drive slash Genesis, uh, let's put that in the show notes as well. Now, I've got to say, when we talk about gaming television, it's always a little bit hit or miss, isn't it? I mean, there are some absolute classics, you know, Games Master, obviously, you know, Bad Influence, which I love. I know not everyone does love that show. Um, then you go to, you know, certain other ones, like obviously Go 8-Bit, which, you know, we were all fans of Go 8-Bit. I, I thought it was, a, it was a decent enough watch. You know, it wasn't as good as like some like Games Master for me, but I thought it was something I could sit down and watch for half an hour. I know that the community was very split on that, because I think, I remember the big complaint, like, oh, it's called 8-Bit, but they're playing like, you know, PlayStation 2 games. Which and then there a, was the Games Master comeback as well. Yeah, which again, I quite yeah. liked. I did quite yeah. like that comeback. Um, this one is quite interesting because all those we mentioned there are kind of British, you know, gaming Bandit shows. Snatch as well was great. It's um, not a game show, but yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, well, apparently Atari are working on a video game celebrity game show that looks like it's going to be made in America, um, tentatively titled The Great Atari Celebrity Showdown. Must have taken a long time to come up with that title. And uh, apparently this is a couple of exec producers, Jay Blumenfield and Tony Marsh, who've uh, apparently worked on shows like, I don't know if you've heard of any of these, The Chelsea Handler Show. Nope. Here Come the Newlyweds. Nope. Gigolos. Nope. <laughs> Restaurant Stakeout. Nope. And Tournament of Laughs. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently they've got some pedigree if you're into that kind of show. Yeah. Um, I imagine, like I said, particularly in America. Uh, but again, it just seems like, you know, Atari are apparently involved in this. You know, Wade Rosen, who is uh, Atari's, I was going to call him new CEO, but he's been there a couple of years now. He's well behind this and apparently working with them. And apparently the, the idea of this is to be a bit of a walk down memory lane and celebrate the history of gaming, the culture of entertainment and the joy of competing like we are kids, they're saying. So basically it's going to be the I, I ultimate think nostalgia be, hit. 
I think it'd be simple challenges like yeah. they're not going to get people on and quiz them about centipede and stuff. It's not going to be like our Christmas quiz no, episode. Where it's like, yeah. How many know, I, I watch a lot of these. Uh, well, I don't watch many of them, but you know, you'll see something like I'm a celebrity. You'd be like, who's the celebrity here? Like, I don't recognise half yeah. the people in those in those shows. It's Great usually, descriptions act on some of those. Uh, yeah, shows people here. from other reality shows and stuff yeah. that end up going on them. Um, but I can see that maybe if they do like little challenges, so they'd just be like, oh, you know, both compete on this round of asteroids or, or do something. But then it's weird because they've got like roller coaster tycoon in there. So I don't know what the challenge is going to be because <laughs> that's quite I, a long sit down game. But I mentioned roller coaster tycoon. I wonder now you've said that because of, for me, I kind of read it and saw it as like, a little bit more like, you know, like our Christmas quiz, kind of like celebrities sat around yeah. and they've got to answer questions because obviously it's saying there's over there's a rich pop culture of Atari for over 50, over 50 years now. And I, I get Atari is a lot bigger, in, well, it was a lot more influential in America than it ever was, you know, in the UK. So my mind went straight to, oh, they're going to be answering questions and stuff. But then Ravi mentioning that, I think it might go a step further. I don't think they'll be playing the games. I think it might be like, you You're know, inside the game. Like, yeah. The hole like, in the wall one. You know, like, do you remember it's a knockout? Yeah. <laughs> you know, with like the giant, you know. Which I like, like that show. I thought yeah, that with show. the giant like inflatables and everything like that. I've got a feeling it might be a little bit more like that. Like, oh, this next game is Asteroids, but they have to like dodge like giant boulder asteroids, like like Takeshi's castle Guy dressed up as a centipede. And- yeah. You know, <laughs> I'd, 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 I'd probably watch something like that. I'd be much more inclined to watch that with some like Z-list, you know, celebrities. I can't imagine, you know, Will Smith or Tom Cruise. Yeah. Um, but maybe some of the, you know, somebody's kind of like reality stars and stuff yeah, I like think, that. you know, I'd rather just watch a TV show about the history of Atari. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. There where is they did well. like a, a dramatic <laughs> recreation of it, but uh, that's my taste. But, you know, yeah, I think if anybody's going to do this, it's going to be Atari, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. they're doing so much at the moment. And yeah. They're, they're branding so much that, um, yeah, w- we'll see. But um, I haven't got my hopes out for this because I haven't watched Gigolos, so, you know. Yeah, well, there's your job this weekend, Ravi. That's <laughs> Report back next week. So, uh, yeah, I mean, details are very scant at the moment, but apparently they are uh, hard at work on uh, coming up with this. So um, we'll uh, keep an eye out for it and obviously give you our review as and when we see it. So uh, if you want to check out that article, I'll link that in the show notes as well. Now, um, did you guys know that apparently the uh, the Nintendo Entertainment System has had a flaw for 39 years? Flaw. Tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about this flaw. Well, apparently some uh, NES modders have uh, fixed this problem with the original NES. And um, and this is caused by what is called the um, Zero Insertion Force Cartridge Connector. I think that's the name of it. Now, this is obviously, if you've you've got an original NES, you'll know that the way it works is you pop open the little cover on the front, slide your cart in, and it kind of goes in, then you press it down. Mm Mm-hmm which I've no idea really why that was the design of it. In my mind, I'm just thinking maybe it was to kind of be a bit similar to uh, a front-loading video I, recorder. I, I could be wrong, but I'm fairly certain it was because of because of the video game crash when they brought it over to America. Yeah, They wanted it to look less like a games console and more like a toy yeah. or a VHS player. I, I'm pretty sure I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure that's what it was and the reason it was initially packaged with Rob the Robot and stuff like that. Because okay. it was to avoid the look of it being 
a video game console. And I'm fairly certain as well, you you can play it without pushing it down. Mm. I'm pretty sure it will play as well if you just put it in and, and put the on button. I need to test that later on. I could be making that up. Well, because they're saying that um, obviously when you have a traditional cartridge slot, mm-hmm. for example, like one on a, you know, Super Nintendo or a Mega Drive. When you push the cartridge down, it goes into a standard connector. It kind of it cleans the pins a bit, doesn't it? Because obviously, mm-hmm. any grime or whatever is going to kind of get you know scrubbed, I suppose, when you're inserting and removing the cartridges. Um, however, they're saying that with the original zero insertion force cartridge connector on the NES, it kind of lacked that element, allowing dirt and grime and stuff to build up on it. Then, obviously, there is a problem which um, is known as the blinking light fault. Um, mm. which generally what you do then is you take the cartridge out, give it a damn good blow, which everyone always advises against. Everyone's always done it for like 40 years. Never, you know, I've never seen a problem with doing that. Um, I was playing my Super Nintendo the other day because, you know, we're doing, we'd be playing some games for the after hours. Um, my Ever, EverDrive wouldn't work actually on it until I took it out, give it a good blow, put it in, worked perfectly after that. Mm. Um, but the saying that basically, you know, that was a reason that a lot of people did that too, to blow the cart and blow some of the, the dirt out that had accumulated on there. Uh, but now there is a solution, and this is called the Nintendraw. Now, looking at this, you might think it's just a basic kind of 72-pin connector that means you can just shove the cartridge straight in. Uh, but they reckon that the way this works is it essentially creates a, a straight shot straight to the cartridge slot without it going down. Right. Okay. So um, there have been a few of these over the years. Uh, there's one called the uh, the Blinking Light Win that came, over, came out a few years back now. But the same, there is a few other tricks on here as well that basically make it a lot more reliable. Okay. So there are some beta testers that are testing this out at the moment. No word on pricing from what I've seen so far, but looking through some of the comments on the tweets, there have been some people that have, I mean, it kind of feels like the, the camp's kind of split into two separate people. I mean, there is some people saying that they've never had a problem with the original design of the NES. And I've got to say, I kind of probably more fall into that category that, yeah, when I have had a cartridge not work, take it out, give it a blow, put it back in. It pretty much works 99% of the time. Um, but then there is a video actually linked up um, that it's not the best film video I've ever seen, but it's on a, a channel called Games Done Legit, where he's actually made his own mod um, that means you don't have to buy any of these kind of uh, additional, you know, modifications for your NES, some of which can be quite expensive, apparently. Uh, but basically, he shows you that um, there is a routine for cleaning the console's pins on here and also lifting the pins of the 72-pin connector on there that means they will connect better with game cartridges. And basically, he just kind of opens it up, gives it a clean with some Brasso and mm. rubbing alcohol as well. And... Um, raises the pins up so they're always going to connect with the, with the cartridges. So it looks like, I mean, if you're willing to open your NES and, you know, play around with it yourself and do a bit of a bit of DIY, you can do it yourself. But I imagine with uh, this Nintendo, it is going to be something that just kind of slots in. Yeah, these things over it. time, you know, yeah. it, they kind of get damaged. Like um, I remember the RAM uh, chips on my Amiga 4000, the little plastic clips broke on those and I had to get them replaced and taken out and then, mm. you know, get the board kind of cleaned up and uh, get a better connector in there. I just feel minus. like it's such a heavy mod to it. Like, you know, I mean, it looks, the little video of it here that they've got, obviously it's a heavily modded NES because they've put a clear shell on yeah. it. <laughs> so you can see which, you know, so you can see what's happening and it does, it feels, it looks so alien to not see it get pushed down. Yeah, um, and it's funny, you know, because it fits and everything, you know, fine. 
but it just, I mean, it's way beyond anything I'd be able to do. Um, well, I've got a feeling looking at this, I think all you do is you open the NES case, you kind of put this in, the slot, and then close it back up again. I don't think it needs any soldering or anything like that. Oh, really? Yeah, but it's basically just a cartridge port extender, really. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah, I thought so. it was like a full-on. Okay, that's pretty easy. You just take the top off. Connect it to the... Yeah, or maybe even just shove it in. Maybe you don't have to take the top off actually looking oh, at it. It might just show straight in the slot. Yeah, but basically, I, I guess it's, you know, it's less wear and tear on the, the actual cartridge slot that's already in mm. there. But yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, like I said, it, maybe there is a massive problem with it, but I've always been fine just, you know... I know it's not advised. Give the cart a little blow, put it in. Generally works for me, so I probably won't be investing in this. But uh, if you do want to get one, they are looking for beta testers now, so you could offer your services. Now, just one more story before we get into our interview this week with an absolute legend of the industry, Domark founder, uh, IDOS as well. Dominic Wheatley is coming up on the podcast in just a minute. Some good news if you are a PC gamer of a certain vintage, like our, uh, our Mr. Abbott, maybe someone who hates DRM, like our Mr. Abbott. Uh, you might be pleased about this news that apparently classic games on the PC that came on optical disc uh, that were protected by a certain form of DRM called safe disc have now been broken from their shackles. So what does this mean? And what was safe disc? I guess that was just like a copy protection that was on yeah, like, CD-ROM and DVD games. It was like an old copy protection. Um, you know, you'd have... Uh, Kind of secure ROM as well. That was another one. And uh, people used to bypass it back in the days. But what it would essentially do was it would uh, do a, like a digital fingerprint that was uh, connected to the machine on a driver or it would do a number, basically assign a number to the disk. Um, you know, using that with your old school uh, CD-ROMs and everything, that's, that's like fine back in the days with your old machine because it would still go, oh, the CD's in there, and it, you know, it would communicate. But um, there's basically been a problem, and the and the problem is that uh, SafeDisk no longer works on modern versions of Windows, and that's because there's like a vulnerability in the driver. So, um, you know, when you you like run something on the modern Windows and you get so many warnings and you get like told off for running any old school stuff which a lot of us do all the time um well like this well, will break your pc yeah, yeah yeah exactly and you have to go yes yes okay i know what i'm doing yes all of this on the kind of warnings well um safe disk they just totally locked it off like they were like yeah you're not going to be able to use this and you may think oh stuff's available on gog or or you know there's there's ways to do this with some pc games there's not um mm. You know, sometimes you need the original disc and you need to sit there, put it in and uh, boot it up and you can't do that. Or you and might that- just want to use your original copy and not buy it again. You know, there's some that really bugs me that, you know, when I've got a game in my library and I'm like, how many times have I bought that on digital as well? And it's like, I've already paid for that game so many times. Yeah, yeah. So um, basically a new piece of software has uh, been developed, which is uh, called Safe Disk Shim. And since 2015, you've not been able to use a safe disk on windows and a, a few people were doing like sketchy stuff which was kind of replacing the driver with a another driver but that also caused like security problems and risks as well so instead of like uh you know replacing the driver this um enables you to have that protection but it intercepts the communication requests sent to the driver so it kind of it goes in the middle of it and uh shims it which, uh, you know, shim is basically um, opening a lock, you know, hacking a lock, shing, shimming it open. Right. So that's what this is kind of doing. It's it's getting in there and it's going, 
you can use your old games again. And it's weird as well because it's 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 like you're actually using a piece of software to enable some kind of DRM in your system. Which is because I mean, when this, I imagine when this got cut off. I mean, looking at the article and a few of the comments, people are like, "Well, I just got a crack for the game," which yeah. you know <laughs> completely like defeats the object of having DRM in the first place. If you've got to crack the game to actually play it past a certain point. But I can imagine places like you know, I don't know, museums that want to play stuff, or like if you have a rare collection. Like I've got sixty-eight PC games in a cupboard, just around the corner, and some of them aren't online, you know. And even some of these games, I mean, they're not even rare titles. Stuff like Call of Duty 4, apparently, uh, their safe disc on there, the physical release on the PC. Age of Empires did. Uh, Prince of Persia. Assassin's Creed, the original one. Morrowind. So, I mean, there's quite a lot of games that apparently, you know, if you've got them in your collection, are now basically playable on modern PCs easily yeah. without a, a workaround. Which Without me having to lug my Windows XP machine out of the, yeah. <laughs> you know, cupboard, yeah. You've got that permanently set up anyway, Ravi, what you're doing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, could be some good news there. If you've got a, a classic PC or DVD collection, you want to play the Money Modern System. So, if you want to read more about that, I'll link that up. And, of course, the rest of the stories, you don't have to Google around. I save you the job every week by putting them in the podcast show notes, or you can head to the website at theretrohour.com. Right then, Dominic Wheatley, getting the story of Domark and IDOS coming up in just a moment. Before that, let's take a second to give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor, and it is a regular sponsor of the Retro Hour podcast. It's a sound that we love to hear. It's our friends at Shopify. And that sound is a sound of making money on Shopify. You hear that one, you've made another sale. Now, if you're not familiar with Shopify, they are the all-in-one commerce platform. Start, run, and grow your business. Because you know what it feels like at the moment? Everyone's got a bit of a side hustle going or maybe even becoming their, their own boss as well. Maybe you want to do that. You're hearing it a lot. Maybe that's your, your plan in 2024. And Shopify basically takes all the hassle out of doing it. It is the commerce platform that's revolutionizing millions of businesses all around the world. And you know, you and I, Joe, were talking about it. You, you mentioned that you've been to a lot of retro gaming markets over the last few months. Seeing these little card readers, you know, these Shopify readers that loads of traders have got now. Yeah, video game markets. I went to a Christmas market with my wife over Christmas. They're absolutely wicked to have. And I think, you know, kind of like where these markets are going and market stores and stuff like that, it is the future to have these little handheld cards. No one carries cash now, do they? Yeah, not too much, unfortunately. (laughs) But yeah, no, they're really, really useful for it. Yeah, so I mean, if you're selling in person, you, you know, they do shop ready for point of sale systems. They also do an e commerce platform as well. Shopify can even get you selling across social media marketplaces, you know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok as well. Industry leading tools designed to ignite your growth and give you complete control over your business. Good thing is, as well, you don't have to learn any new skills, no design, no coding knowledge needed or anything like that. And they've got award winning help and are ready to support your success every step of the way. So if you're thinking it's time to get serious about selling, get Shopify today. And they'll be there to empower you and give you the confidence to take your business to the next level. So if you want to try this out, and why not? We've got you an incredible offer. We've got this for just £1 a month trial period of Shopify. So all you have to do is head to this website right now, open the new tab in your browser, type in shopify.co.uk slash retro hour or lowercase use our exclusive link so they know that we sent you really helps out the podcast shopify.co.uk slash retro hour and get ready to take your business to the next level today and hear a lot of this 
Okay, then keep it here. We have got the story of a true iconic British software company uh, talking about some legendary titles as well. Everything from Trivial Pursuit to James Bond to Star Wars to Lara Croft. All of that coming up with Domark's co-founder, Dominic Wheatley. He's next on the Retro Out Podcast. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest, and it is an absolute privilege to have a true pioneer of the gaming industry, the co-founder of the iconic Domark on the podcast this week. Obviously, classic games like Eureka to legendary licenses like James Bond and Star Wars. Obviously, going to be some Tomb Raider talk as well. Let's welcome on our guest this week, Dominic Wheatley. How's it going, Dominic? Well, thank you very much for having me on. I'm uh, delighted to be here talking with you. Yeah, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, share some Domart memories with us. Um, and one thing we always like to do with our guests, just to kind of get a bit of background, is because I know you've kind of got quite a, maybe a different background to a lot of our guests who, you know, were passionate about computer programming, for example. I know you kind of entered the industry in quite a different route. So I'm just kind of interested in how that started for you, what your first computing or gaming experience was, what kind of happened there? Well, it's, uh, well, it's, it's it, my, my journey has started off fairly circuitously. I, I was actually a soldier. Uh, when I left school, um, and uh, I joined, as my father would refer to it as the Brigade of Guards, um, uh, now called Out on Division, and became an Irish, young Irish Guards officer, uh, went to Sandhurst, of course, and uh, did uh, some, some, some time out in various jungles of uh, Central America um, and other exciting escapades. Uh, and then I, oh, yes, short service commissions, so I left after, I suppose I did four years in total. Uh, and I joined an advertising agency because that was my first love, was really marketing. And I, I've always enjoyed watching ads and reading ads. And I loved this sort of, you know, the theoretical selling. You know, how do you, how, you know, if you're if you're a car showman, you're a car salesman, you have the, uh, the, the customer in front of you. If you're not, if you are doing it in a print ad in a newspaper or magazine, how do you communicate the message across to persuade someone to actually want to drive a Volvo or a Ford or whatever. And I thought that was absolutely just up my street. And it sort of still is in a way. Um, but anyway, that was why I did this. I joined uh, an ad agency called Clark Boomer Hill. Um, and I, I was a junior account executive. Um, and I did two years there. Um, now, of course, in the officer's mess, we used to play video games. Uh, you know, I, even in the bars in Paris, I would play Breakout and Space Invaders, and things like that when I was on holiday. You know, so I was all, I've always enjoyed playing games, but as a sort of consumer, not, and I never thought of going into that as a, as a business or a profession. But what changed, what changed was that in Christmas 83, I saw my brother had come home, back to the family home, and he bought a Commodore 64. And I'd never seen one of these before. Uh, and he was playing a game called Heroes of Khan. Uh, and what I thought was so exciting and different about it was that instead of sort of wiggling a joystick and shooting you know, Space Invaders, 
it, it was a parser tech-based sort of adventure game. So you type in, you know, kill the dwarf. And it would say, ah, you killed the dwarf, and now the gate is open, and the valleys are, you know. And there's a little sort of graphic came up, not frankly um, good graphic, but something. And I just couldn't believe it. I thought, this is amazing, because up, up to that point, and I know some of your listeners are probably rather younger than I, but, I mean, you know, computers were things that were in finance departments, you know, you know they're nowhere else. And so I was like, wow, this is extraordinary. So uh, I, took a, I took that idea uh, f- uh, away, and I thought that I would go and pitch maybe Commodore or, of course, Sir Clive Sinclair and win the advertising account. That was the germ of my uh, uh, interest in the video games industry, computer games industry. That's fascinating. Yeah, like I said, a very unique entry into the industry there. And I mean, uh, before we get into the founding of Domark, I mean, I imagine the, you know, the, the name Domark is an amalgamation of, you know, uh, Dominic and Mark, and who Mark, was your, your yeah. co-founder, Mark Strachan. So how did you meet Mark yeah. then? Did he work at the agency with you? He did indeed. I mean, bear in mind, I'm 24 years old. I know nobody and I don't know much about anything, right? And I didn't have you know, a lot of business experience. I didn't have a lot of mates who, who were experienced. But I knew Mark, of course, because we worked together in this little agency. Um, and we were the same age. And uh, we got on well. And I had taken in the new year the idea of, of trying to win a client in this newfangled, you know, home computer world. Um, back to the agency. And I, I, I actually walked upstairs to the office of Terry Boubert of Clark Boubert Hill, um, who's a lovely man, absolutely fantastic guy. And I went up and I was going to talk to him about this idea. And I opened the door and he looked up at me. I can see it now. He looked up at me from his desk and I looked at him and I just suddenly went, no, 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 no. So I said, oh, mm, Terry, I'll, you know what? I'll, uh, yeah, I'm going to come back to you. And I walked back down the stairs and I was thinking, wait a minute, no. I think, I think I could do this. I could, I could start a company making these games. Um, so I grabbed Mark and I said, pub, now. And we were in, in, in just in Farringdon, a little um, uh, square, Clockwell, green. And we went down to the pub and I said excitedly, I said, listen, I've got this idea. And I explained it. I said, would you like to join me? <laughs> and he said, yes, of course. <laughs> and that was the origin of Dominic and Mark, Domark. Yeah, exactly. Did you um, have any idea of which departments were needed and, and how this company was going to work when you founded it? No. Um, I mean, apart from this sort of the obvious, of, you know, we've got to find someone to make a game and we've got to, you know, uh, market it and, and sell it. We didn't really um, have too much of a clue about setting up a publishing business it was effectively a, a, a one a one horse company right there's this game which we came up with eureka and of course actually if you think about it you know what was the the defining part of eureka well there were two defining bits one was that it was a, a prize of twenty five thousand pounds for the first person who found that secret code which to be honest was loosely based upon masquerade right the kit williams i think it's kit williams um book uh, at the time, which was very popular, you know, find that uh, it was a, a golden hair that he buried somewhere in an English field, you know, and if you managed to work out the coordinates, you could you could dig it up. Um, so that was so it was, a, it was an amalgamation of that, and of course we were introduced to Ian Livingston by a fellow called David Bishop, uh, who's a mutual sort of friend of ours, uh, and we thought, well, if we get Ian to to, to sort of you know author the script, then you've got that famous author. 
piece, you know, it'll be a good fun adventure game. Oh, and you might win a prize. And if you think about it, given that we were two advertising guys, you know, we were marketing guys, it kind of makes sense that we came at it from a marketing angle, right? This is why we had this prize, you know. That was our idea. It was really more of a marketing uh, play than, than a sort of pure video game play. Um, and that's that's the, that's where it came from. So, so actually, uh, we didn't we didn't think about oh we're gonna we're gonna build this company's gonna have you know, five games a year coming out and we're gonna no we didn't we just thought let's do this one thing see how it goes. Yeah, well, I know that game really put you know Denmark initially on the map. I mean, obviously every kid in you know every bedroom around the country wants to win twenty five thousand pounds, and I imagine they spent a lot of time to. So I think the way it worked is they completed the game and then there was a phone number at the end. And then if they could call that for a chance to win. So, uh, I mean, how did you go about marketing that then? Well, if, well, first of all, uh, just, just to be precise, it, 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 the, the, I mean, we were, we were pretty diligent about, you know, our plan. We did have a whole business plan and we did follow it exactly. We thought it all through. We followed it. The phone number was sort of buried and we, nobody was supposed to know, you know, one well, of the programmers you know, who, who made the game buried it at some at some part of the game it was actually eventually found is that was that was buried in there and the number was wired to a specific line which was then wired into an answer machine at the house of our lawyer okay so whoever at whatever time of day or night managed to find this thing the idea was that they ring the number the number would say hello well done you found it please leave your name and number we'll get back to you and then the lawyer would check the answer machine, uh, you know, every day to see if anybody had rung in on it. It was a one dedicated line. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, you know, when eventually it did happen, he was able to uh, to, to ring back and and, uh, and say, yes, well done, you know, come and, come and see us. So it was all kind of carefully thought thought through. But when it came to the marketing piece, um, we, we were just like a you know, traditional marketing uh, guys. So we were advertising in the Sunday Times, and we were and we were advertising in all the in these sort of computer magazines that were pretty uh, fanzines really, and and we did leaflets, we did leaflets, and we we did leaflet drops in certain areas, um, and stuff like that. It was all fairly sort of standard marketing stuff, um, and in particular, of course, we had a PR agency, and they got us a lot of coverage in the Sunday Times and the Daily Mail and all that, yeah. And it was very much in the mid-80s, you know, sort of Thatcher's era of entrepreneurship and so on. It was very much, you know, two young guys starting a company and da-da-da, very exciting, and it's all in computer games. And, you know, so it wasn't hard to get the coverage in the, in the, in the, in the dailies. And that sort of did put us absolutely in that. Nobody else was really doing it. But here's the, here's the thing which, is, which changed from the beginning of our, of, our, of our planning and all the way through to the launch. It went from being a mail-order-only business to becoming a retail business in the sort of 10 months from start to finish. It really was extraordinary. So everything that we planned was based upon mail order, like get, get, you know, here's the coupon, you know, fill it in, credit card number, send it in the envelope, and then we'll send you a, you know, a game and a cassette. Yeah. Uh, actually, we sold about 3,000 in the end that way. Um, in the summer of 84, it, suddenly we saw Booths and WH Smiths 
started stocking games, serviced by people like Centersoft and Leisuresoft came up. And then you had the independent retailers, the mom and pop stores, which were popping up everywhere, right? Selling Commodore 64s and Sinclairs, but also selling all the, all the games uh, in these little stores. And, and of course, they were d- uh, supplied by Microdealer, which was this little uh, distribution company for small independent stores. So suddenly we found ourselves kind of, you know, coming through August, September, we're heading for a November launch. And we're like, oh, my God. Now everybody's stocking them in the stores. We're going to have to find out who the buyers are, and we have to go visit them. Did you initially have some like reservations about the home compute market and how it would actually go before it uh, exploded? And was it kind of seen as a bit of a, a risky move? And also, did anybody yeah. actually win that prize as well? Yeah, okay, so, so, so the first question. No, I had absolutely no doubt. Right, that that it was going to grow and grow and grow, and in and for all sorts of reasons, and it wasn't just about you know, video games, but actually uh, you could tell the people were starting to, to yes use them as word processors. Um, yes, they were sort of doing you know calculus on. They were there were other applications that were starting to come through. So I, I was never concerned that these things uh, wouldn't get. I mean, we you know when we were raising money, I mean I had potential investors uh, looking at the plan and say to me, this is a skateboard. It's going to be over by Christmas. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's, this is going to be massive and it's going to grow and grow and grow. So I had no doubt about that at all. In terms of who won the prize, well, it was a fellow called Matthew Woodley. Now, Matthew was uh, about 15 years old and he had been playing the game, you know, day and night, day and night, day and night. And he finally found the number and, you know, and rang it. Uh, so one of the fears that we had was that somebody would find it too soon, right, and it would all be over. <laughs> you know, the third day, you know, and that would kill sales. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we were like, it can't be won too quickly. But we, equally, we didn't not want it to be to be won. We did isolate the money in an escrow account specifically for the purpose. Because in those days, maybe it is now, if you did offer a prize as an incentive to purchase something, you had to ring fence that prize by law okay so we actually had it legally kind of put into a little escrow account and it could only be used for the purpose of 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 a prize winner right which meant that you know if today no one had ever won that actually i don't know about today but you know for for years if no one claimed it it would still have to sit in that bank account just in case Somebody picked up an old copy and got an old Commodore out, and suddenly, you know, ten years later, rang the number. So we, it was it was gone anyway, right? The money was gone. So we kind of wanted it to be to be to be to be one, but but we didn't want to bid one too soon. And I think I'm going to say it must have been at least six months or so, or more. I could try to remember when uh, Matthew rang the answer machine uh, at our uh, lawyer's office, and you know, bingo, he rang us up and said, "Hey, we got a we got a winner." And Matthew's 15 years old. And by the way, 25,000 quid in those days. I mean, you could buy a house. And, you know, and he, and he, he's, he, I think he's, he, he put it to good use. I think he invested wisely. He then, of course, used to come and hang out with us, right? So he'd hang out in, in the office in Putney. And, um, and we couldn't sort of shake him off, really. I, I, he, went, he went to university, and I have a feeling we may have contributed in some way to his, to his feeds. I was using on the on the podcast, we could tell us. I, I think we made some contribution to his fees because the idea was when he finished university, he would come back and work for us, which he did, which he did. So uh, when he left uh, uni, he came and uh, and he he went to the marketing department, um, and he 
he grew his career with us uh, for quite a few years. And then he, he joined Sega and he became like you know, head of marketing at Sega. Um, and I haven't spoken to him in a while, um, but I, I have a few years ago I did. Um, I, did, I think he's gone freelance, but he's, he would become a, a very senior executive in the video games industry. It sounds like that twenty five thousand pounds was a, a very good investment in Matthew. Then it's uh, yeah, it sounds like he went on to do well after. Um, yeah, yeah, amazing. And obviously for Domark, I mean, it, it got your press coverage as well, and it felt you know, looking at kind of the game history, <laughs> um, you know, your, your gameography of that era, it, it feels like you know suddenly you became a, a really well known company in the media because you know you won a, a huge license. Next, you actually got to produce a, a video game based on James Bond. Well, okay, so. When we embarked on Eureka, we thought it was either going to sell a huge amount and we'd become incredibly wealthy, <laughs> and our shareholders as well, because we have to raise money, um, or it would be a bust, and we just go back. And funnily enough, White Collins, Ralph Scott, like I mentioned before, the ad agency that was sort of sat above our agency, when they first heard that we were thinking of going off and doing this, this thing, we were summoned to their very uh, magnificent penthouse sort of suite at the top of the building in Jury Lane where they, were, where they had the big agency. And there were four guys, all tall in Armani, you know, looking frightfully cool and sitting on sofas. And and we did our pitch. And they kind of, they looked, you know, they were kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we went back down in the lift with the finance director. And as we we're going down the lift, again, I can see this, like, playback play in video. And he, John McKinney, and he goes, um, well, um, the guys would like to put £25,000 in. Well, they were like, oh, 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 well, that's great. And it's like, um, oh, and uh, the other thing is, um, if if it doesn't work uh, and, you know, uh, you have to close the business, um, they'd like you to come back and work for them. <laughs> ah, we're like, oh, my God, what sort of investor is that? Like, you lose their money and they give you a job. I mean, <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I mean, real, I mean, you know, that's real style, isn't it? And um, and I thought, gosh, these guys are great. So um, so of course, uh, you know, we 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 obviously had to go raise all this money. We had to put it down the black and see whether whether it worked right. And what happened was what not what we were expecting. It neither was a huge success nor was it a disaster. It was kind of in between. We sort of got all our money back plus some, right? And now we're going. What do we do? Okay, because there is no. We have no other ideas. This is this was our idea, and then we were going. No, wait a minute. Oh my God, we're going to. So, again, being marketing orientated, right? I'm sitting down with my thinking cap on and going, well, uh, we. Don't, I don't know that much about you know making games, and we, of course we played those games, but we we didn't read. So I'm like, oh my God. Oh, how about we make a game based upon something? And there was a. James Bond movie called The Living Daylights, which had been mooted as coming out the following year. It was like, I think it was Roger Ward's last one. Um, uh, and uh, so I, I found the uh, agent responsible, um, a guy called Derek Coy, uh, Dan Jack, and I went to see him. He's an older guy. And um, we had a very emotional lunch. So Mark and I took him out for lunch. And he would be in his 60s, right? And we were like in mid-20s. And it was bizarre because we're having our little lunch and we are, obviously, we do like a nice bottle of wine. So we're having, well, we're probably on our second or possibly even the third bottle with this dude. So, you know, we're all becoming quite sort of merry. Then he goes to this thing and he goes, 
did, are your fathers proud of you, right? And we're like, um, yeah, I guess. You know, proud that you're starting a business and you're going. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I think so. And then he burst into tears. And <laughs> wow. we're like, whoa. He says, he said, my father, they were proud of me. I've done so well. My father was never proud of me. And so we had the whole, this whole dump, this whole, you know, we were like therapists for like the rest of the, of the lunch. But as a result, we, we won the rights to James Bond because <laughs> he, he fell in love with us. And so we got the rights to James Bond and we got a team of people. And I, and I can't remember who it was. Um, I'm sure they're you know, scattered now, but a team of guys uh, to, to do a game. It was a pretty dreadful game, I have to confess. But it was a game and it did have James Bond on the front and it did sell extremely well. And of course, it was the start of many licenses that we then published. Well, an- another huge license was a Trivial Pursuit, and um, we all know there's a great connection between board games and video games. Um, what was it like getting that? Because nearly every household probably had a copy of Trivial Pursuit. Yeah, so so at this point, okay, we've done James Bond. I think we did a game called Gladiator, which was a homegrown game, which did okay, but not great. And we're starting to run out of money. So um, <laughs> so we, we, went, we went to the bank... And we, we said, look, we've got this idea, um, at Lloyd's Bank, actually, in Pall Mall, um, and a, a fellow called Neil Money, a great name for a bank manager, Neil Money, all right? Um, he probably, Neil Oliver, probably, you know, so he's probably N-O Money, you know. Uh, <laughs> anyway, this guy uh, was a great guy, absolutely fantastic guy. We went to see him, we said, look, we've got this idea, but it's going to need, we're going to need a quarter of a million pounds to do it. Um, and, uh, and he kind of, you know, for some reason, you know, he gave us the money. So I found uh, Horn Abbott, the agents for Horn Abbott, um, who were the guys. There were was, was two brothers. I think you're the, I think there are two Abbots and one Horn, I think. the three, These three three men, I guess they were quite young men, had um, in the United States. They, they, they were penniless people, absolutely penniless. Uh, they lived in some terrible shack. Um, and it was near a beach or something. They used to comb the beach and pick up bottles and tins and things and take them to the store and get 25 cents for every bottle they gave in order that they could actually sort of you know, uh, buy Coca-Cola. So mm, they were dirt poor, but they did love board games and they, and they had these board games they would play all day long. It was sort of beach bumps, really. And then one day they said, you know, we should make our own board game because we love board games. Uh, if we made our own board game, maybe maybe we could market it and da 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 So one thing led to another. <clears throat> they came up with this idea, a game based on the, of course, questions and, and particular categories and subjects and so on, and the rest is history. <clears throat> they, their lawyer, they went to a lawyer. The lawyer put in half the money to help them get to it. And 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 they made 5,000 copies, which they sold in their local town to, to stores and obviously maybe a few local towns. And, you know, it just took off. Bang. The next thing you know, they, 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 they sold it, I think, to Parker Brothers. And they made literally tens and tens and tens of millions of pounds. And this, again, in the 80s, when millions of pounds, you know, uh, meant something. And now it's a now it's a two up two down in uh, in Battersea, but in those <laughs> days, you know, it was real money. And and oh my God, they 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 made a fortune from this thing. And that was the the whole start of Trivial Pursuit. So we come along, we go, okay, we can do a computer version of this. And interestingly, um, Leisure Genius, which was a brand that was bought by Virgin Games, right? Leisure Genius was Scrabble Monopoly. Oh God! Something else. I mean, a few other games, and it was a very much a board game brand. Okay, that's a genius, and they didn't pick it up, 
because they couldn't see how it could be made into a computer game, right? But we had a vision for this. And I failed to remember exactly why, how we ended up with Oxford Digital Enterprises, but there's a, a, it was a little company of game makers in Oxford. They were students, actually. And David Pringle was the boss, and he put it together. He was a, he, honestly, he was actually a nuclear physicist. I mean, it sounds incredible, but he, was, he really was top, top, top nuclear physicist. And he was a lecturer at the University of Oxford, and he had this kind of group of about four or five uh, young guys who made games for people. It was just very embryonic. We somehow came across them, and we, we said, well, can you do it? And sure enough, for money, they, they did it. And we go every week, we go down to Oxford, uh, with crates of beer, and we'd sit with these guys six o'clock in the evening and discuss how the game was getting on and look at it and heck up with ideas. We really had to put our all into it because we borrowed this money from the bank to do it, okay? And, well, inch by inch by inch, we got there, uh, and, 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 of course, the rest is history because that sold millions of copies, um, not least through the Book Club Associates. Yeah, I mean, um, having but, sold that many units, I mean, how did that change the company then? And did it change the culture at all at Denmark? Well, it, it did. It, it put us on the map and it gave us a ton of dough, right? So we walked into, we didn't say anything because, but the very first check we got uh, for the, uh, was a quarter of a million pounds. And it was from the Book Club Associates and Dixon ran the Book Club Associates. And in those days, yeah, you got, you're paid by a check. It wasn't transfer electronically. So, we got this check, and we asked us to visit the bank, Neil Money. And at this point, by the way, Neil was starting to really bob. He, I think he felt that maybe he'd, he'd done something really stupid, and we were, we were going to default on the loan, and it was all going to, you know, he was going to lose his job. So we, we, we said, we need to come and see you. He was very, very serious, <laughs> just to wind him up. And he's, like, <laughs> panicking. He's, like, panicking at this stage, right? So we, we march into Lloyd's Bank in the Palmer. And, and you can see he's, like, the colour is draining from his face, and he sits down. <laughs> and we're looking very sort of, like, sad and sheepish. And, you know, we go, oh, God, Neil, you know, you've got something to tell you, and it's really, really, really bad. And he's, like, oh, God, God, no. And, 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 then, and then we pull out this cheque from BCA, we put it on his desk, and we go, boom, no more overdraft, and there's plenty more to come. And literally the guy oh you got his i mean he literally leapt back in his chair and his the eyes closed he was like oh oh my god oh, loosening his tie and, and, <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely incredible yeah it was such fun it was such fun and we got had booked a fabulous restaurant you know the west end and we said come on psst, out to lunch now and we went out and and, and got pash and it was just great fun great fun and what a wonderful guy uh he was and of course more checks came in as we went along because of course you know, the, the micro dealer and of course uh, the, uh, the the leisure soft, the soft, all these checks were pouring in, and um, and it and it was just fantastic. So we were high on the hodder. We went and we rented, or we we we, we moved office from a, a little garret, which was like some shit place, and we moved um, to a much better office. So it did indeed put us on the map. And then, of course, we we carried on with more with more licenses. Yeah, speaking of huge licenses, Domark got the license um, for games based on Star Wars, and um, it was a huge brand at the time, and you started a, a partnership with Atari. How did that partnership start then? Okay, so, well, <clears throat> um, now, if you recall, there used to be a sort of a computer game section at the CES, Consumer Electronic Show, in Vegas in January, and it would be in Chicago in June. And everybody used to go there, but now we, 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 we didn't have, actually, we didn't want to send both of us there. So I went on my own to Vegas 
in January or probably in seven, I think that. And 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 I'm meeting this guy called Manlio Allegra, right? And he's the agent for all the arcade coin op companies, which in those days was a very very big deal. There was Namco and Capcom, of course, and you and you, and you had uh, uh, and well, you had certainly Atari, and you had all these big kind of brands, and they. They had arcade machines in these malls and other areas and so on. It was quite big business. And what Ocean and U.S. Gold and Elite, actually, uh, another game publisher in those days, had started to do was to get the licenses from these very well-known and popular coin-ops and turn them into home computer versions. Okay. And we're now moving into the sort of the Atari, ST, and Amiga era. So we think, God, we should be doing this. Well, we've done, we, we've done, you know, some other licenses, but we we thought, gosh, we ought to try and get into this area. So I fixed a meeting with Manu. Now, Manu represented all these dudes, and he, he we sat in my really grim bedroom um, at a hotel, and he had this list of, of coin-op games, and he was like, "Hey, Dominic, you know, for like a triple A game, we're talking." $250,000. If, if it's like a, a double-A game, it's going to be $100,000, you know. And that's how we grade things. So, you know, you got to get in the game. you got to be here. you got to put the money down. I think we didn't actually have that sort of money to, 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 to put down and risk. And I said, oh, no, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. And he was like, hey, Downey, you know, come on. you got you got to be in the game. Oh, I said, look, look, what have you got? Uh, he's, he goes through this list, and, he, and eventually... He comes down and he goes, uh, uh, Star Wars. I'm like, oh, Star Wars. And he goes, what do you mean, Star Wars, Star Wars? I mean, come on, it's 10 years old. Nobody does that anymore. I'm like, no, 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 no. Manu, Manu, Atari, a Star Wars coin-up game. I, I've played it many times. You sit in this thing and you go this vector graphic, you know, kind of shoot the TIE fighters and then you go into down the hole and shoot you. The brilliant little vector graphic game. Great fun. I said, uh, uh, ideal for her computer. I'm like, I want that. He's like, are oh, you killing me? You're killing me. No, damn it, it's not going to work. I'm like, how much, man? How much? He goes, oh, my God. All right, 25,000. I said, done. And I said, I'll take the other two, Empire Strikes Back and Jedi as well. So, anyway, he said, fine, fine, fine. Oh, my God. You know, this is going to be a disaster. So I get the rights, and we blaze it across CTW, Computer Trade Weekly, uh, those days, the games magazine, uh, that we've got the rights to Star Wars. And I get a call from Rod Cousins. And Rod Cousins, who, if anybody doesn't know who's listening, they'll probably don't. Uh, Rod Cousins famously was head of Activision in Europe uh, back in the 80s. Then Acclaim. Uh, uh, then, actually, he was a Codemasters, uh, sole Codemasters, um, and he's, he was the Jagex for a while, and he's now, you know, uh, take, put his feet up a little bit, but he's been immensely successful games guru in our industry. And yeah, we had him on the podcast together. a couple of years ago, lovely guy. He's a lovely guy. He's full of great stories, by the way. Great stories. Bad time you had him on again. Anyway, uh, so Rod rings me up. And he goes, oh, Dominic, yeah, Rod, yeah, look, uh, I've got a programmer who sent me some, you know, code of Star Wars. You know, we don't want it, but, you know, I'll put him in touch. I said, yes, Rod, absolutely. So this guy called Jürgen Friedrich, young student, really, uh, from Germany, but obviously, you know, uh, absolutely brilliant and he came over we got him over we paid his flight he came over and he showed us a sort of demo where we said can you do it on Spectrum Commodore Amiga ST PC <laughs> and, he, and he was like oh yes I think I can do it yes I can do that but I've had to, to be here in London and we did, so we, were, we didn't want to kind of get a flat or anything so believe it or not 
he took a bedroom uh, and bathroom at the very top of my parents' house in Wimbledon. Right. So, I mean, he literally lived with my parents. I mean, every day he'd come down and they'd feed him, I guess. Practically and, part and of the he, family he, then. <laughs> he was. Yeah, yeah. He was, Jurgen. He was, wouldn't it? And for about five months. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that long. In those days, I mean, you know, things get, I mean, now it would take seven years to make a game. But in those days, it was pretty quick. Uh, and, he, and he banged these things out. And they were excellent. It was a perfect copy of the Sorry game. So we put it out again, November, I'm going to say 80. Where are we? 85, 86, 87, somewhere. Like and, and it goes out and boom, number one, number one, absolutely across the country. And the checks are pouring in. Now, bear in mind that we've, our advance to Atari was $25,000. And now it's November, December, boom. The first quarter, okay, that we, 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 well, the first quarter is effectively the final quarter of the year. So we total it up and we've made a lot of money. Uh, I think we had to pay 20% royalty to um, uh, Atari. And we cut them a check for something like $570,000. <laughs> and then you kind of get this check. And I get this phone call uh, from a guy called uh, Randy Browlite. And he's like, uh, hey, did that Dominic? Yes, yes. Dominic, you know, who the are you? <laughs> and we're like, well... When it's this little games company, it's like, we need to come and see you. Mm. Like, well, are you doing anything next week? Like, uh, not really, no. Like, okay, all right. Well, we'll see you Tuesday. Bye. And these three Atari executives, Becky DePew, Randy Browlite, um, and Dan Van Elderen. Mm. See, my memory is still pretty good. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Dan Van. These three dudes turned up at our doorstep with our little tiny, you know, company office. And they're like, what did you do? And we're like, well, you know, we did that. Anyway, we go out for lunch, we go out for dinner, blah, blah, blah. By the end of their stay, they're like, we want you to do every Atari coin-up conversion. And that was it. From then on, every arcade game they put out, we did the home computer version. Uh, and it was a rich seam of creativity. And, of course, you know, these games were well-known. So you're pretty sure to make your money back on the cost of making them home computer version and it produced a line of product um which uh which was which was along with other stuff that we did um fantastic so that's how we got in with atari well obviously i mean you're making a lot of product by this time and i know that you um because originally you mentioned that you're kind of outsourcing the game programming but then you brought it in-house with i know there's a the kremlin team is that right kind of your in-house uh, programming team tell us a bit about how, kind of how that was set up then and how did it change your company bringing that in-house so, so we, one of our guys, uh, he was a pro programmer, actually, and a sort of producer as well, was a guy called John Kavanagh. And he was a young Irish guy. He'd come over to Britain. He was born in Limerick. Um, and he, but he'd come over. Uh, he was very bright. And, um, and he was doing some internal stuff. And he worked for us. He was sort of a, a techie guy, right? Uh, and we had dinner one night in, a, in an Indian restaurant opposite the office called Samrat. Uh, in Putney, I think, super, best Indian in, in London. And he was complaining that we would, you know, waste all this money by giving it to outsourcing people. We should have our own team and blah, blah, blah. He was droning on and on and on about it, okay? And I'm trying to get, dig into my prawn biryani, which if anybody ever in London, Putney wants a really good prawn biryani, the samurai is the place to go. And I said to him, right, I said, John, go, go set it up, set up a team. 
And he, and he looked at me like, what? I said, yeah, 17. So he went, uh, 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 okay. So that was the birth of Kremlin. And, and, and he got a whole lot of uh, programmers together and artists and everything else. And we started doing a lot of the Atari game conversions effectively in, in the Kremlin. And it was in, I believe, Chertsey, mostly because he, he lived somewhere near there. So he put it at the office uh, near, near. And yeah, and they churned out stuff. That that was the that was the first of our in-house studios. Well, you ended up moving to um, the US in 1992 and set up a US division of Domark. Um, what was your inspiration to move there, and uh, what memories stand out for you at that time? Okay, so in those days, most of the Americans uh, in the, uh, the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, most Americans were operating in America, but they were starting to open up their UK or European offices like Electronic Arts and so on. Um, and we, up until that point, had done sort of swapsies. So, for example, we distributed Broderbund games. Okay, every game that they did, we would replicate over here into Europe, translate manuals and things, and then we would put it out, okay, and distribute it, and then send them a check. And they actually would take our games, like Star Wars and stuff like that. They would take our PC and they, they would publish it over in the States and then send us a check. So uh, we thought, well, God, write it on the wall. And I said, look, if we don't have an office in America and control our own products, and we're going to be we're going to be a disadvantage and, and, and it probably ended badly. So I said to Bar, look, you continue to run this kind of uh, European side. And of course, a lot of the development games, I will go and set up in the US. And I took, funnily enough, John Kavanagh, the guy who I just, I, you know, who set up our studios, because we were great friends and because actually I needed a good techie guy. And so the two of us literally got our visas and pshwing, uh, we, we, we went out um, and, um, and set up our, our Domark sort of US office. And we did do distribution deals with people like Spectrum, Holobyte, and, and, and indeed Atari did our cartridges because, of course, yeah, cartridge business is very uh, capital intensive. You have to pay you know ten dollars a cartridge. I mean now it's it's a disc, but it's, or if it's physical goods. But in those days, you know, ten dollars a cartridge. Uh, it's three months beforehand, you've got to pay the money. Then Sega or Sony or Nintendo would then send you the the well, actually not Sony, but Sega or Nintendo would send you the the the, 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 the you know, two hundred thousand uh, cartridges. And then you'd sell them, and then you'd get the money back after 90 days from the retailers. So the cash flow was absolutely horrendous. We needed partners with deep pockets to take us to market, but we needed to be there to do the marketing and selling and make sure that the buyers at Toys R Us and Walmart and everybody were, you know, knew who we were. So that was the idea. So it was very, very small to start with, but gradually I started hiring people. And in the end, really, after three or four years, that the U.S. office really was, was running the whole the whole show. I mean, you know, talking around that, that time as well, the early 90s, there was obviously a, a massive um, series of games that started uh, then, the uh, Championship Manager games. I know the first one uh, developed by uh, mm. Intellec that Domark published. Uh, what are your memories of, of that project then and kind of how did, how did that relationship start? So, so Championship Manager came in, along with lots of other games, into our sort of, you know, test room. And um, when someone said to me, you know, oh, we've got this football management game. I'm like, ah, you know, there's so many of them and it's a really hard market and da-da-da-da-da. And I, I really wasn't terribly interested. But then my finance director came in and he said, uh, a guy called Jeremy Bard, he said, um, 
there's this game, this championship match game, and literally people are not leaving the office, right? They're staying at, like late and playing, and they're all sitting around, they're all playing it. It's got to be something there. So I said, oh, God, right? So I went and had a look, and I didn't understand it at all because, uh, first of all, I'm not really a football fan. I know, I know, I know. But, you know, there's one of us. <laughs> there's one of us who's not, not mad about football. And, and, and I didn't really get it. And also, of course, it, it wasn't lots of lovely graphics. It was just this kind of, you know, all this text. You, you know, you place your bets and then you see how the, the outcome of the game and then you win and you lose. And I'm like, mm, okay, it doesn't really look great. Um, but all right, fine, fine. Everyone was like, you've got to do it. So we get the Collier brothers down, right? These are two brothers, they're, they're, they're the university, and they come down. And we would pay for them. We had to pay for them, the train ticket to come down. And they come into my office. They're lovely guys. And I'm like, two students. I haven't got a bean. Um, and I don't know about this game. So uh, I'm going to have to offer the very smallest upfront money for, for the game that I've ever, ever contemplated. £5,000. Well, they thought it was a fortune, of course. You know, they were like, what? £5,000? You couldn't believe it. So anyway, we then, you know, got them to finish it. And we, we went to an agency where they specialised in, in ugly people, like models who are of ugly people. And we got this ugly guy to stand with a camel hair coat with a cigar in one hand and jabbing his finger at the, at the camera, right, as a kind of coach. Like, like, you know, whatever that, I mean, those days, most football coaches were just nasty, ugly, pig, ugly kind of nasty people. Now they're, they all look like uh, movie stars, but those days, they were like awesome, some of them. And, 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 they, and we thought that, that will be exactly the sort of um, manager that we, we look for. So we put him on the front of the box and we put it out and we sold that at a couple of thousand units. And then we got a phone call from, you know, Leisure Soft, can we have another? 3,000 units and sent us off round. They wanted 5,000 units. We waited, that doesn't happen. And then the next week it was like 10,000. And we're going, what's happening here? And it didn't go out with a big bang. It kind of erupted like a like a volcano. And now we're busy trying to make enough for the demand and it's going completely crazy. And of course, again, these two lads, right, their first royalty check. I mean, I think it was at least. If I, but I'm going to think. I'm thinking it was seventy or eighty thousand pounds for their first, you know, couple of months uh, royalties. And and of course they. Came, I said, come on, come and celebrate. Come down. Come to come to come down. And they turned up with this brand new Golf GTI. <laughs> and they were like, they were like, they were bouncing up and down. They were so excited, and they came bouncing in. And we, uh, and so. Anyway, it went on and on. They, they made a lot of money. We made a lot of money. They, of course, Championship Mansion 2 came out. And it had its problems, actually, with Champ 2, because they were very inexperienced, really. Um, and there, there were a lot of bugs. It was quite ambitious. There were a lot of bugs, a lot of complaints. I mean, if, if we were on Steam now, it would have been you know, mixed to negative. You know, the thumb would be definitely in the orange. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, it was a real But we gradually, gradually sort of reversed that. And then, of course, the rest is history. It just became the biggest selling football management game of all time. And, and, and uh, you know, it, it, it definitely helped build our reputation as a publisher and add, added a lot of money to us. So the corollary of the story is that, believe it or not, Matt Woodley, the winner of Eureka Prize, became a marketing director, whatever it was, of, of Sega. Um, around about, I'm going to say, 90s, 
1998, he was in place, and he was luring the Co- the Collier brothers away. They, they, I think their company at that point had been changed to Sports Interactive, and 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 you know this very happy relationship. I had left, by the way, at this point, so I wasn't anything to do with idols anymore, the, the Deluxe Strike Idols, and and he and Matthew managed to managed to persuade them to, to go to Sega, and Sega bought them, and that's why Sports Interactive is now a division, and the Collier brothers work with that division for Sega, and now it's player manager. Well, it's called player manager because I owned the rights to championship manager because I we kept like we kept the name for us. They had the game, the code that was their copyright. Well, our copyright was the name. Now, for some reason, and this is way after I left uh, um, Idols. The idiots who, who eventually looked after Idols didn't have any a gumption to be able to say, "Look, we give you the name championship manager. Just give us like one two percent, you know." <laughs> All right, make something out of it because we weren't going to do anything with it. They tried to do something with it, but it's pointless. I mean, these boys, these college, I mean, they were, you know, they were, the, they were so fanatical about football. I mean, even over lunches, I mean, you couldn't really talk about anything else. And I didn't know much about football. But if I said, you know, how's your father? They say, well, my father is really, really well because, you know, Manchester United won against Tokyo. Like, <laughs> you know, they couldn't talk about anything else. Um, uh, they were, and, but which is, of course, why it's so good is because they're so passionate and so, and so detailed. And the difference between champ manager, people as you say, what's the difference? And the answer is the algorithm, because they would attribute 20 different kind of, you know, features like the speed, uh, tackling, dribbling, shooting, you know, whatever it is, for every single player, right across all the leagues, all the divisions or whatever it was in those days, uh, to a very, very, very accurate degree. They literally knew every single player. I mean, thousands. And they, they would give them these attributes and put them into the... So that when you built your teams, or you had a team against another team, you know, it was very accurate. You know, yeah, he does always trip over his feet before he actually, you know, gets to the goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, that's exactly what that dude does. I recognize that. Because they would have accurately defined that attribute to him. And that's why people found it so perfect. And in very few other companies have managed to get to that level. You know, you, you did touch on there the the change to IDOS. Now, I'm interested in that story yeah. because um, you know that was around 1994. Um, I read that happened, and um, mm-hmm. you you, uh, you met Charles Cornwall, who was the the chairman of IDOS. I, I'm quite interested in the background of like who IDOS wore because I heard they were like a small company that were making video compression software for like the Acorn Archimedes. I mean, how did that relationship start, and how did that end up becoming a basically a reverse takeover and Domart becoming IDOS. What kind of happened? Well, exactly as you say. So I was introduced to Charles Gould by a mutual friend who was also an investor in uh, in, uh, Domark, had been from the very beginning, actually. He was a city guy, uh, very, very powerful, successful, rich city guy. And he introduced me to Charles because he'd come across him, and Charles had got, was chairman and bought into this little AIM, no one is uh, USM in those days, but equivalent of AIM, a kind of little company, which had raised a billion pounds to do data compression technology. Uh, in those days, uh, obviously, you know, your, your landlines were, were taking data and it was terribly slow. And the idea was if you could divide packets into little easy to send packets and compress the data, which would then open the other end, uh, you know, as a full thing, you could get a lot more speed and a lot more data uh, done. So data compression technology was really, really quite the thing. To be honest now, I mean, this is still a thing, but it's with fiber, you don't, you don't need it in the same way that people did in those days. So it was the right idea. Uh, and they sat in a little office trying to do this data compression technology. 
um, to be able to sell it to, I don't know, you know, whoever. And, and of course, they would not actually be able to sell it to anybody. It was very, very uh, pregnant with hope, but it wasn't actually translating into sales. So small market cap of not very much, uh, uh, six, seven hundred grand in the bank, okay, because they were hardly spending the money that they raised because only about three or four of them. Um, and uh, no Ferraris in the car park, you know. And and it, and and it, uh, lots of hope, but yeah, nothing actually happening. And Charles bought it because what he saw was a little nothing company that probably could act as a shell with some cash in it for something proper. So when we got together, he said, "Look, um, you want capital. You want to grow your business. It's difficult to necessarily go public out of the box, but if you reverse into." IDOS, Domart reverses into IDOS. When you've got a real business, you know, turning over, you know, millions of pounds and all the rest of it and lots of people, we'll put it into this business and that will be its the new business that IDOS will go to. And and that was how it began. Um, and clearly, uh, you know, I was not that au fait with the city and how you raise money or flow companies. So it's very helpful having somebody who did know how that worked and who to talk to. Uh, I mean, you know, since then I've funded probably five, six companies, uh, and I've got loads of mates in the city who are fund managers and brokers and blah 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 blah. So you know, there's no mystery now. But if I if I had known then what I know now, I would have needed all this. But I certainly did at the time, and we we we, we reversed in. I mean, it was actually in September, I believe it was September '95 when we finally uh, consummated that and became uh, listed on, on the London Stock Exchange. And a lot of other people had bought shares when it was a nothing, you know, not worth anything kind of company. And suddenly, their shares became worth huge amounts of money. <laughs> and they, they were didn't very happy. want to hit them. <laughs> they just, I mean, they didn't want to hit them. You know, I mean, admittedly, also my shareholders, you know, my mother had money and my father had put you know, 10 grand to show good, good faith uh, when we were kicking off back in the mid 80s. So it was exactly sort of 10 years later. And there were people who I hadn't seen since the, the day I got to. I had two Morgan Grenfell bankers uh, over a hamburger in Fulham. Uh, wrote out checks for ten thousand pounds each and handed it to me over the you know as I was squeezing the old tomato sauce on my burger. Um, I didn't see them for ten years, right? And, uh, and, the, and then I get phone calls and they're like, "What on earth did you just do? <laughs> I, I've got like half a million pounds worth of share. That what what did you do? You know." Um, uh, so it was quite fun when we went when we went public and yeah, uh, um, and everybody was successful. So it was great. I think you had so many companies involved as well because uh, Big Red Software got involved, um, yep. Center Gold, um, Core Designs, US Gold as well, and you were expanding very fast. Um, yes. I, I was wondering what it was like when when Tomb Raider hit then and uh, uh, you, you saw it for the first time, how, how crazy it went then. Right. So, so so yes, you're right. When we, when we went public, so start with the, the Big Red. Yeah, so, so Paul Ransom, fantastic guy. I loved him like a brother. Uh, he'd done some games which we'd published them. so I bought that company and him and he got a nice check he was delighted changed his life and then the other company was come called Simis Flight Sims and we published all the flight sims that they'd ever done in Baverstock and Jonathan Newth terrific guys I had actually published them only a week ago um, wonderful guys uh, and so we bought them so we, we, we bought a couple of studios to, to pad it out 
And then the following year, so now, now we're moving the clock forward into 96. It's about, I'm going to say it's February, maybe March, and Charles rings me up. And he's South African, so he says, Dominic, uh, there's a company called Syntex Gold, and I think we should bathe in. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's Jeff Brown's outfit, right? Sandersoft and, of course, US Gold. And together they called it Center Gold. It was listed on the stock exchange. It, 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 had, it had some problems. It had been not very profitable because share price was in the tank. And it really wasn't worth very much. Um, and I said, oh, that's really interesting. I said, you know, I think the US Gold piece is the piece we want. I don't think we want Sandersoft. I think it's a distribution company, it's a logistical, it's a, like you got to, you know, you make 5p on every box. It's, it's just not our style. We, did, we just don't do that. So I said, if we can sell Centersoft to the management and keep the US gold bit, then yeah, let's buy US gold. So he goes and we make a bid. It's like 15 million quid and we buy Center Gold. We sell Centersoft off for, I think, 8 million pounds to Roger Sudels um, and his team. And then the other piece of it, which is the US gold publishing piece of it, we, we take over. Um, they had the Olympic license and they were working on and this sort of thing. Um, and then we now we're in E3 territory because the CES shows are now a thing of the past. It's all about E3. The industry is big enough to host its own dedicated show in Los Angeles. And I've got a big stand, and I got all my boys and girls, and I'm, uh, you know, stuff is happening. It's very chaotic. And the first day, I, uh, I had a whole lot of material that's just come in from the UK. And one of them is a videotape, and it's got Tomb Raider written on it. And I'm like, okay. And I'm initial, initially, I'm like, oh, sounds like a kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of knockoff. It's like, it's like, uh, yeah, this is kind of cheesy. Um, so anyway, um, I put it on. Uh, kind of got all the salespeople, all our sort of reps, all the grungy old reps out of New York, you know, seen it all, been there, done it. I mean, they're always, always miserable. Uh, they, they mostly repped for toy companies as well. And if you've ever come across anybody who reps for a toy company, they are literally one of the most miserable creatures on earth. I mean, they just go, it's, I don't know why. It's just, they're, anyway, they're all looking, you know, grumpy. And I put this thing on. And I go, okay, so we've got this new game coming in this year, and it's cool, and it's going to be actually on PC and at PlayStation, uh, it's, it's gonna, you know, which had just come out the year before. And Lara, she's running, and her ponytail is swinging behind her, and she dives into this kind of underground kind of pool um, and uh, in a tomb, and, you know, and I'm looking at it, and it's like, wow, this, this is amazing. It's like a fantastic character, great animation, and then since she turns around and she winks, I mean, she literally winks at that, you know, at us. We're watching it, and that's the end of the trailer. And I'm like, oh, and these guys are clapping, right? They're all applauding. They're like, wow, they're all, they're all and they, they never applaud. And I'm like, <gasps> like warm glow came across my chest, you know, because you know, oh god, we've got something here. So I go back onto the stand. I'm like, right, we need all these things. Take that down. Take that down. I will post this and you know. Too bad. I want more tape. Get some more tapes cut, and we can put them into the the, the loops that go round around around on the teddy screens and so on. And Idos, uh, Domark, in fact, originally, but uh, Idos were famous for their show parties. We were always shut down by the fire marshals. There was always uh, drama and uh, intoxication involved in our parties, and uh, we were famous for it. And everybody used to try and get in, and it was always a nightmare and great fun. And that night we had. Exactly that. We had a huge party in a big, big nightclub we'd taken over. And a, a fantastic country rock and roll band won it. 
Um, I could see the drummer now. He's one of those dudes who can bang the drumsticks on the thing and it goes in the air and come down and he catched them. And then he'd bounce it off his, uh, his heel and catch it and back. Uh, incredible guy. And everybody was coming up to me going, damn, Tomb Raider. I saw that in a stand. It's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. And, and literally everybody was talking about it. And I knew that we had something. Yeah, I mean, that was just a complete game changer. When, you know, no pun intended when that game came out, wasn't it? It was uh, just the biggest thing in the world. And obviously yeah. it continues to this day. It's still yeah. a huge franchise. Um, a, a couple of years yeah. after that, though, in, in 1997, that kind of marked the end of, of your era at the company. You, you left in 97. I mean, what kind of motivated that then? And how did it feel leaving behind the company that you'd co-founded a decade before? Yeah, you know, it, it's, I, I, I think, I think there were a few things that, that, that combined, really. I think the first one was, to be frank, the boat had come in, you know, and, um, and I, and I, and I was, I was quite tired. I mean, admittedly, I was only about 35 or 36, but it, you know, it'd been a long 10 years and it'd been so many ups and downs. So many moments where we got close to bankruptcy and then suddenly, you know, rabbit was pulled out of the hat. It was quite weary. And the fact that we managed to lumber through, we were almost the last band standing. Bear in mind, I mean, all the other great names from that era are pretty much gone. I mean, you know, Domark Strogaidos is about, about the only one that's still, still, you know, a name uh, in, in, in a way. I mean, all like now owned by Embracer, but yeah. And, and I felt that. And the other thing was that, I think Charles and his thoughts and ideas uh, and pe- some people that he brought in on the board had a different set of ambitions to me. I wanted just to focus on building a games company. And Charles was like buying record labels and he was buying, you know, CGI studios in Soho. And he, he was sort of, he was he was like a sailor who'd just come into port. You know, he was sort of buying everything. And, and I, I, I felt that we were going to end up probably falling out. Um, and it was no point, and I just didn't feel like a fight really over it. Also, my wife wanted to bring the children, two little children. They'd grown up in California. They were entirely American. They spoke American. <laughs> and uh, it, it, we had to kind of make a decision. They're sort of seven, eight years old now, and what are you going to take back to bring them up in England, you know, rather than leaving them back? So she wanted to go back to England. We'd done five years, and the boys had come in, and, 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 and. And I just thought, you know, leave them laughing. Uh, I'm done here, and I'll, I'll ha- take some time off and then, you know, see what happens. So that's really when I left in uh, 97, and um, and I, I we ended up in France, and, you know, and, and then we went, and obviously, back to England, and we sort of mooched around. So it was the end of an era, really. Uh, and I just went on uh, quite strongly, Obviously, mostly because of Tomb Raider, um, there are some crazy stories uh, that came out, and I was obviously because my guys, you know, my old friends uh, like my McGarvey and of course Cavanaugh and and others who were still there. You know, I'd meet with them for dinner and I saw them in London. I get all the stories of craziness. So there was a, there was a whole book to be written about Idos uh, in those years, but uh, eventually, of course, it fell into the arms of uh, Square Enix. Um, who, who bought it, uh, and, uh, and then, then that was it. That was the end of the public-held company that effectively I founded. And um, But it still exists today in some form, and as I say, Embracer now in it, uh, and some of these great franchises. Uh, but, uh, no, I don't regret leaving. Um, sometimes you, you know, you sort of, you finish your business and you go, that's it, on to the next. 
And obviously your career has continued, you know, very strong in the, the gaming industry. I mean, you're still involved today, aren't you? What, what do you do now? So, I, so I, I sort of, I, I became chairman of Kuju, which was a spin out of Simis because I think Ian Bavistock and Jonathan News sort of felt the same way as I did. And as soon as they could get out, they did. Um, and I became chairman of that in the early 2000s. And, and I floated it, I think, about 2004, maybe five. Um, and I had other non-executive directorships and, and I had, you know, various uh, uh, projects. I mean, I did some property, you know, all the sort of things that you, you, sort, of, you sort of muck about. Um, and uh, then we were approached by a company called Catalis. Uh, it's a German company, listed the exchange in Frankfurt, run by a couple of German guys, and they wanted to buy Kuju out of the London Stock Exchange for, for cash. And it was a good offer. We said, all right. So um, they approached me and said, look, uh, would you like to come on the board at Catalyst? And as a non-executive, I'm like, yeah, okay. So I was chairman of Kuju underneath Catalyst and on the board of Catalyst. And the only other thing it had, it was supposed to be a buy and build. It was supposed to be like a keyword. So, I mean, that was the idea that the Germans had, you know, buy and build services to the kit. But... Actually, the only thing they had was Testronic, which was a film and television testing company in Hollywood, but nothing to do with games. And and then this game-making company, which is like a, it was a work-for-hire studio, 350 people, blah, 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 uh, but doing games for Ubisoft and Activision and so on. And so, you know, these two things were going together. Then we had um, uh, a, a very disastrous uh, time. Um, I, will, I will delicately say that it had something to do with management, <laughs> Um, without necessarily pointing the figure in exactly the, the direction, uh, but nevertheless, management. Uh, had, well, and they asked me to take over uh, in 2012, well, 11, 12. And I hadn't actually run anything since uh, I'd have said, I'm like, oh, wait, I'm the chief executive of, a, of, a, of a, another company. Well, you know, what time do they start work? Is it still you know, 9 30? Uh, great. Okay, fine. So I, I went to see my wife. Uh, she, was, she was lounging by, by the pool in France. And I said, um, I think I might be going back to work, you know, like proper work. And she's like, oh, well, good, you know, <laughs> get out. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, make some proper money. So, it was, so, I, so that's it. I took it over. And it was basically, we owed 12 million euros to KBC Bank uh, in Brussels, which somebody had borrowed. And, um, and, uh, you know, we were in deep, deep, um, I can't say the word, um, <laughs> but we were <laughs> in it deep. Yeah, doo-doo, that's it, that's the one. And, 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 and you know, uh, uh, it was a, a, almost a mission impossible, okay, because the bank wanted the money back, they're banging on the door, they're about to pull us down. And, and I had these two, Kuju had suffered from lack of games, you know, to make because they were all sort of biz dev, and Testronic was in the, you know, film television testing, you know, with DVDs and stuff. It was kind of small business. And so I had no time at all, but I had to figure out what to do. And the way I dealt with it was that I, 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 um, I, I turned Testronic into a games testing company, right? So we went to Poland, threw out a couple of floors, uh, beg borrowed, um, uh, some desks and tables and stuff, and we started testing games. The first client was Riot and Rovio and people like that. So suddenly, you know, money started to come in on that side of the vision. With with Kuju, I got Gary Bracey, who's a wonderful, wonderful guy um, and a great sales guy. And he was uh, at a loose end at the time that I rang, thank goodness. And I said, what are you doing, Gary? He said, well, not very much. I said, well, come meet me this afternoon for a drink at Canazoro Park. And he turned up 
And I basically had a nice chat, and about an hour and a half later, we'd agreed that he would join us, and he was on a plane to Seattle to see Microsoft on the Monday morning. So it was like, you know, we didn't have any time to waste, basically. We needed stuff. And gradually, we got more gigs for Kuju and money. So, you know, cash started to come into the company, sort of bleeding out. And I went back to the bank and said, okay, <clears throat> we've noticed uh, that we've started to put money in. Now, I've got a plan to pay it back. And I basically... Um, did a big presentation. It was make or break. The Germans came with me. There's non-executives. And these four very grumpy Belgian bankers were looking at us, you know. They thought they'd lost their money. We were in the, you know, the bad bank, the, bit, the recovery bit. Um, where they get big bonuses, by the way, for everything that they get uh, back out of something they think is gone. And uh, anyway, uh, three of them said yes. One of them said no, but, you know, the eyes have it. So they sort of reluctantly agreed, uh, but I did pay a quarter of a million euros a month to them. And by 15, we'd paid everything back. Much to their surprise. <laughs> Much, they're literally, so, you know, I mean, a, a relief yeah. and presumably, you know, trebles all round, right? Their bonuses must have been fantastic. Um, but uh, yeah, and it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was very, very, very hard work. And it was nail biting because you know he just anything could go wrong, um, but we just squeaked through. And as soon as I was able to keep the money that we were making uh, from, of course, Testronic, um, which by that stage started to really grow quite big, um, and and of course we do we started to keep the money. Then then we could start to expand and do something. And the first thing I did was to buy Curve Games, which was a small, perfectly formed, digital only game company on Steam and, of course, um, you know, PlayStation and Xbox. And very, very small, but, but uh, you know, needed a little bit of money and perhaps a bit of guidance to get it, to get it in. And, and, it, and I only bought it for a very small amount of money. But uh, it's gone on to great things. And, of course, things like Human Fall Flat sold 45 million copies uh, on his own and, and, uh, and The Ascent and, of course, For the King and For the King 2, which just come out to be a huge hit. So... You know, we've, we've built that, that come out. And, and Testronic now is well over 2,000 people. I mean, I, I can't remember the last count. It's, it's like 2,300 people um, across the globe, from Manila to Bucharest to Belgrade to Lisbon to Madrid. And it's all over the world now and uh, a very great success uh, of a company. Well, Dominic, you know, you've had an incredible history in, in the industry. And I feel like we've crammed in so much into that last hour and it's incredible to you that the passion still burns strong and you're still involved you know at this level today as well and obviously i'll link up you know the curve games website and testronic if people want to kind of check out the catalog and hopefully purchase some of the games as well um, indeed so i really appreciate you taking the time Love to guess, uh, come on and do some reminiscing with us it's been wonderful to talk to you <laughs> well a great pleasure and it's quite fun to relive these memories because it's you know your questions sort of spark memories I'm quite surprised that I can remember all these names and places, but there we are. Um, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a trip, a trip down memory lane. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.